0: welcome to murderers and monsters before we begin today a brief warning contents may be disturbing and language may be explicit and inappropriate for young listeners so listener discretion is advised hey y'all welcome to murderers and monsters i'm your host marie um last week we started the episode on the wolfert murders We're going to go ahead and do part two of that this week. If you haven't heard part one, please go back and listen, because if you didn't hear that one, this one's really not going to make that much sense. But we're going to go ahead and jump in, and we'll do a little talkie-talk afterwards, okay? When we ended part one last week, Tom had been quietly taken away from the scene of the murders for his own safety. Most of the people in the area were convinced that he had indeed murdered all nine members of his family. There are a few key points that I would like to tell you about today. One by one, the witnesses were interviewed. These would be the farmhands and the first people who were at the house the morning after Tom had run for help. Greenlocket insisted that Tom had been trying to get him to go into the house when they thought they had heard something inside. He believed Tom was trying to make it look as though he had been the one to commit the horrible crime because he was a man of color and a farmhand, whereas Tom was not, and would be believed over Lockett. The large laborer was ordered to strip, and his clothes and body were examined for blood, but no evidence was found to implicate him in the murders. Then there was the blood, and there were specks of blood in Tom's ear, blood on his shirt sleeve, and a bloody handprint on his leg. Tom said that all of these came about due to the fact that he went through the house to check on the bodies after the murders had occurred. The only problem? There was no way the position of the handprint was made by Tom as he would push himself to stand after checking on one of the bodies, the way he had explained it. Then there was the axe. The axe that was used to commit the murders belonged to Tom. But I believe the most damning evidence against Tom was the bundle of clothing found in the well. It was said that the bundle of clothes belonged to Tom, that it was his shirt and hat, both soaked with blood. At this point, if there had been any doubt, at, at, if there had been any doubt as to Tom's guilt, there wasn't now. Of course, Tom was arrested and charged with the murders. He was originally kept in jail in Macon and treated, for lack of a better term, as a sideshow attraction. And they allowed person after person to come through the jail to gawk at him and talk and whisper about him as though he couldn't see or hear them. Tom's mood those first few days was a mixture of sad and despondent, and then he would be confident and chatty. When his sisters heard about what had occurred, they immediately came to be with him, and of course, so did Aunt Fanny. They asked him point blank if he had done what he was accused of but he vehemently denied any wrongdoing and would never back down on that he didn't know who had murdered his family but insisted he had nothing to do with it it was about this time that the newspapers went wild with this story there were horrible descriptions and allegations about the murders and about tom some said he was having relations with his sister pearl and that they were caught together and that is what caused tom to kill his family some said that tom wanted his father's money and property and the only way that he could have it free and clear was for them all to die and then there were those that stated that tom was just plain crazy and that he, the only way to explain and that was the only way to explain what had happened but whatever was said it wasn't just in the headlines here in georgia but across the country then came the trial After four months of being locked up, it was finally time for the trial to begin. Tom had been in jail in Atlanta, Georgia for some time due to the fact that people wanted to exact their own justice. All parties involved just felt that he would be safer there. Tom was treated well in Atlanta. He was much further removed from the turmoil that was in Bibb County. However, he was brought back to appear at the trial. It was a long and drawn out situation, so I'm going to give you the gist of what had happened. People in Macon were convinced that Tom was guilty, so you can only imagine how hard it was for him to receive a fair trial or even have jurors who weren't biased. But they finally decided on 12 jurors. At daybreak on December the 5th of 1887, people began to gather at both the jail and the courthouse. Every corner along Mulberry Street in Macon was packed, for everyone wanted a glimpse of the prisoner. By 8.30 a.m., the people were able to get inside the courtroom, and they waited patiently for the trial to begin. From the very beginning, the prosecution was in rare form, talking loudly, using grand gestures. He had the jurors and the audience eaten out of his hand. John Rutherford, who was Tom's lawyer, struggled at every turn. He was an excellent lawyer, but it was hard to convince anyone to hear any evidence that may show some doubt as to Tom's guilt. Even though there was a washwoman from the farm that stated the clothes found in the well did not, in fact, belong to Tom, you know what I mean, who would know better than the woman who washed the family's clothing? There was also a laborer who was sent to the chain gang by Tom's father and was heard by others on the farm to swear revenge. And how about the fact that the wounds on the victims, some were made with the butt of an axe and some with the edge, on the same body? And last but certainly not least, how could one man, one man kill nine people with no evidence of resistance in any way? Tom's father was a grown man, so was his brother Richard, yet there were no defensive wounds on anyone. And we're to believe that only Tom was able to accomplish this alone? I'm going to read you exactly what Tom had to say before he was convicted. My name is Thomas G. Walfock. I'm 27 years old, he said in a low voice. I'm innocent of this terrible calamity. The defendant looked at the sheet of paper that he had taken to the stand with him and began to read. The reporter Folsom looked around at the spellbound room. Every eye was on the defendant. No one moved. The attention was hypnotic as Tom told of his activities the day of the murder and of bathing and turning in early. I slept until about two hours before day when I was awakened by a groan and a blow and a scream. He looked up at the audience and then turned the paper over. I jumped up to go to my father's assistance into the room where I heard the noise, but my brother Richard was quicker than I was and he rushed in ahead of me and was not down. I could not see what happened. The light had been blown out. I could not see him, but I heard him fall. I knew that my life was in danger. I was greatly excited. I turned around and jumped over my bed and out the window onto the front porch and ran down to Green Lockett's house, the nearest house on the plantation. When I was going out of the front yard, I heard screams from the children. I called Green and called him. He came after I called him several times and sat down on the steps as if he was very much disturbed. I begged him and begged him to return to the house with me to help protect my family. He said he was afraid to go. Tom then continued by describing... How after he could not get help, he decided to go back up the hill. I could hear the voices of the killers in the house, he said, and the dogs barking. I followed them to the back gate. I heard the gate slam as they ran down the hill. Then I approached the house very cautiously. He told about how he entered the house and searched for his family. He described walking through the blood, how he checked each body for some sign of life and found them all dead. He explained how he moved his sister and picked up his mother. When help came, the suspicion was great against me, and I was immediately accused by the crowd and arrested, he said softly, looking around at the audience. He then defended himself against the testimonies given. John Owens is a bad character. My father had put on the chain gang for stealing corn in the swamp. He also cut a white man. I do not remember telling him anything about wanting to on my father's plantation some day. What I do remember is him saying that he may be painting the walls white now, but he'd paint them red before long. He hadn't forgotten about the chain gang business. I don't remember any such conversation with Mr. Dannenberg, but if I said anything, it was not a threat toward my father or parents or anything of the kind. He concluded his statement, folded his paper, and then turned towards the jury. Now, gentlemen, if you think I'm guilty, I hope this crowd will take me and cut me into pieces, and I won't flinch from it. The morning of december fifteenth was cold and dreary. Tom's trial had lasted ten days. It took the jury only twenty minutes to reach their decision. Thomas G. Wolfock was found guilty. His two sisters, Lily and Floride, and his aunt Fanny, who had stood beside him through it all, gasped and began to weep. The judge asked Tom to stand and questioned if he had any reason why this sentence should not be passed on him, and Tom replied. I have been tried by 12 honest, competent, and intelligent men, Your Honor. I feel satisfied that they have done their duty. But prejudice against me from Bibb County is so strong, Your Honor. Witnesses lied, although they're honest and intelligent men. The courts treated me well, but the court and the jury followed the witnesses. Tom put his right hand up and in a voice strong and determined said, I am an innocent man. The judge then announced that he would read Tom's sentence the following morning at 9 a.m. However, the reporter, Folsom, realized that although the judge had left, the opposing counsel, the sheriff, the jury, and court officers did not move. He waited and watched. After the room had emptied, the judge returned and read Tom's sentence after all. It is ordered by the court that you, Thomas G. Wolfe, be hung by the neck until dead. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. He was scheduled to hang on February the 10th of 1888. During the meantime, Tom was once again sent to Atlanta for his safety. Of course, there was a motion for retrial. Then it was postponed over and over and over again. Tom lived past his execution date only because his case was in the appeal process. Believe it or not, by June of that year, Tom was returned to Macon. In my opinion, powers that be were tired of the delay and were almost ready and willing for the public to take their own justice. More than a year after Tom's conviction, on January the 30th of 1889, the judge finally heard the argument for retrial and overruled the motion. There was a new prosecutor at this time, Dr. William H. Felton, and he made an extremely convincing argument. The defense and the prosecution went through the entire previous trial, piece by piece, once again and again, the decision was the same. When all was said and done, Tom asked his lawyer, what's next? His lawyer told him that they would start all over again, but that this time they would request a change of venue because Tom would never get a fair trial in Bibb County. Finally, after much disagreement, it was decided that there would be a change of venue. There were several choices, Houston County, Crawford County, Twiggs County. The worry was that all of these were too close and that the bias would be the same. The decision was made, and it was decided that the case would be moved to Houston County, moreover, to Perry, Georgia. On Sunday night, June the second, the Central Railroad scheduled a special run from Macon to Fort Valley. Tom was woken from his sleep and transported then and there. The train took Tom to Fort Valley, and from there he was transported by carriage to Perry. The same judge as before, Judge Augustine, was to hear the case for the fourth time. Tom's lawyer, Rutherford, requested a change of venue, stating that Houston County was still too close. Once again, he was denied. So then, he requested that Judge Gustin himself be disqualified on the grounds that he was a partner in the firm that the Howard family, Tom's stepmother's family, had contacted to represent them after the murders had occurred. The judge stated, quote, I'd be glad if I was disqualified in this case, but... I've thought about it. I cannot say that I'm not qualified, End quote. In a strange turn of events, as they went about seating the 12 jurors that they would need for the fourth trial, a mistrial was again called. This time, because several of the approved jurors were reported to have been heard discussing how they believed Tom was innocent, that a man should not be convicted on circumstantial evidence alone. Judge Gustin declared a mistrial. So far, the, so for the fifth time, the court again sat 12 more jurors, and it started all over again. Again, the process continued, and again, the decision was the same as before, guilty. There were the same witnesses, the same accounts of what had happened. There were people who were on Tom's side, so to speak, and then there were those who had made their decisions the night that the murders occurred and would not be dissuaded. The date of Tom's second hanging, August the 16th, came and went, with his lawyers continuing the appeal process. At this point, his kinfolk were alerted that Tom had not eaten for six days. He said that they were feeding him swill, and he refused to eat it. All through this time, Tom's lawyer had sacrificed his health to try to prove his defendant not guilty. The judge, after refusing Tom a new trial, had resigned his judgeship. The lawyers' efforts to get Tom's case to the Supreme Court went nowhere due to the endless postponements. So Tom was then put on death watch until the time of the hanging, since there would be no more trials. Georgia Supreme Court ruled in favor of the state and upheld the verdict. On October the 6th of 1890, the Houston County Superior Court convened. Tom's lawyer was not able to attend due to an illness, so two other lawyers sat with Tom. The court asked if he had any reason the sentence should not be passed upon him, and he said, I have nothing to say except I am innocent of the charge. I didn't do it, but I would rather be innocent in my grave than be alive in the circumstances that surround me. I am an innocent man. The execution date was set for october the 29th tom had been in jail for more than three years at this point on the morning of the hanging both of tom's sisters came to the jail and spent around an hour with him then the family and the prisoner walked to the courthouse and tom dictated his last will and testament to the sheriff after an hour tom read the finished document and signed followed by the sheriff as a witness Tom then kissed and hugged his sisters. They both wept openly. The reporter, Folsom, was allowed to speak with Tom, and he asked, Tom, are you ready? Tom said, yep, I've made my peace, and tomorrow I'll be with the Lord in my heavenly home. The next morning, the reporters were there to see him and try to get statements one last time. Tom dressed slowly and purposefully, before greeting them, as he knew some of them well after all this time. Tom was given a cigar and a drink. He was asked once again if he was guilty of the crime he was accused of, and he looked sincerely from face to face and said, quote, I know there are those who don't believe this any more than they believe I'm innocent, but I did not do this, and I'm an innocent man. Tom's Sisters Husband Henry Cohen of Hawkinsville was given permission to visit with him. Tom requested that he not be given any sort of grave. He didn't want that for his sisters. His brother in law was visibly shaken, but agreed to Tom's wishes. Three preachers came to pray with Tom, and he told them that he believed that his sins had been forgiven and that he was all right. Now was the time for Tom to wash and dress. He inspected each piece of clothing carefully. Then the barber entered and shaved him and trimmed his hair. It was almost noon by this time. Tom was left alone to eat his final meal. At 12.15, a large crowd had gathered at the gallows. It was like a circus with photographers and street vendors. They had set up bleachers and were even selling tickets. It was time, and Tom was ready. He was escorted to the carriage to take him to the gallows by the reporter Folsom and the sheriff. The sheriff counseled Tom. Be brave, Tom, and be calm. He was then taken to the gallows. From where he stood, he could see the Perry Cemetery. He requested that they don't make it too long to get through it as soon as he can. Tom's handcuffs were unlocked, and he was asked if he had anything to say. He said, I would like Dr. Warren to pray. Then the last words of Tom were read. I, Thomas G. Woolfolk, realizing the existence of an infinite, wise, and holy God, so as to meet him, knowing all I have ever done and fully understanding that I must stand before the judgment bar of God, and that today, in a few hours, I shall be called into his presence to solemnly declare my innocence. And I leave as my last declaration that I did not take the life of my father or any member of his family or have any knowledge of the person or persons who did this murderous deed. Tom became visibly anxious. His jaw twitched and he clenched his fists. His chest was rising and falling in jerks as if quietly sobbing, but he made no sound. The hills around the gallows were covered with thousands of people as Tom prayed aloud. O thou omnipotent being who presides over all things, hear this, my last petition to thy throne of grace. Thou knowest the innermost thoughts of my heart. Thou knowest the sins I have committed, and for them I ask forgiveness. O God, now have mercy on my soul, which I now entrust to thine keeping. Make it pure and clean. He spoke clearly with a slight tremor in his voice. God bless my sisters. Bless those who have gone before me. Forgive all those who have abused me, and accept my soul, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The noose was then tied around Tom's neck, and a black hood was placed over his head. The sheriff grabbed the lever and snatched back with all of his strength. The trapdoor fell, and Tom's feet dropped out from under him. It was over. It was 1.31 p.m. It was over. It was 1.31 p.m. For 17 minutes after the trapdoor was sprung, Tom's chest still moved. Everyone waited. At 11 minutes after 2 o'clock, the doctor listened to Tom's heart the final time and gave the order to cut the body down. The doctors told the sheriff that the man did not die of a broken neck, but of strangulation, that the noose was not set properly, Thomas G. Woolfoot was buried in a family plot in Orange Hill Cemetery in Hawkinsville, Georgia. And that is the end of the Wolfook story. That has been a long and drawn-out case, y'all, for me at least. Um, I got a bunch of different sources and things like that. I'll list them all in the show notes. I read a book called Shadow Chasers um, by Carolyn Deloach. It's the uh, Woolfolk Tragedy Revisited. There's actually two books that she wrote, but this is the most recent. She spent 20 years researching the Woolfolk family. It's a really good in-depth book. It had a lot of names of different people. And it was just, I believe it would have been really difficult to have listed all of those names and things like that in this episode or in this story period. So if you really want an in-depth look that includes all the names, every single, everything I really uh, recommend you go in and read that book. It's just really, really, really good. Um, okay. So that's the end of this episode. Um, I'm going to talk to you for just a few minutes before we finally cut it loose. Um, <clears throat> it's been a really good day today. Uh, me and my husband, we had a day date. We went to the movies and saw the Pope's exorcist. It was good. Wasn't exactly what I expected. I thought it would have been a little bit more horror-ish. But it really wasn't. Um, It was good though. It was good. I'm trying to work on this um thing, y'all. Because I listened to the end of the episode of last week. And I was um, umming this and um, umming that. I'm working on it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyway. It's been a really good day. I hope all of y'all have had a really good weekend. And I will talk to y'all next week. Bye.